Hey, Mike. Hey, Michelle. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. It's been a while. October twelfth for West Coast that, Project. That's a little while. It's a little while. Twenty fifteen for True Detective or twenty fourteen? Twenty fifteen? Two or three years. Yeah, I think somebody said like a. I read like a year and a half or something, but I think it's. It feels like it's been longer than that. No, I was thinking three, three and a half. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That that sounds more more right. Wow. So what did you think? Uh, I like it. I was going to ask you what you think, Michelle, because everyone talks about, and this is West Coast Project, we're doing True Detective Season 3, Episodes 1 and 2, but um, everyone's talking about, like, how does this compare to Season 1, or how does it compare to Season 2, is Season 1 better than Season 2? What do you think about all that? Do you uh, try to compare those, or do you even care? I do care. And um, I don't know if I try to compare them. I don't know if I can avoid comparing them. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be really hard on this season. And the reason I'm doing that is because two was such a colossal mistake. I think in, in, in my view, it was like, I was almost angry at two because one was so good. And then two was so a lot of people liked it, so I don't want to call it bad, but it was so different. It was a different type of show, and it didn't even feel like a continuation of one. So I wasn't happy at all with two. So three, I I started in with this, and I'm still going to be this way. I am nitpicking, mainly because I'm irritated at two being so different and, in my view, not good. And... Because they waited so long to put it back out. I feel like that is so, um, what's the word? It's like pompous, right? It's like we can wait a fourth of a generation to put out another episode. And it's just, it's, it's crazy, you know, and expect the people to still follow it and stuff. So I'm, I'm going to be hard on it. Well, I don't think they just wait for no reason. There's probably, and I don't know what the extraneous circumstances are, but there are probably reasons, finances or c- talent availability or creativity. Okay, you know, look at look at George R. R. Martin and his delay in his books and stuff. Well, you, that's kind of what I'm talking about, the George R. R. Martin stuff, all the Game of Thrones stuff. And um, Sopranos used to do that. When they were on, they would, you know, wait a year and a half between seasons or whatever. And I don't know exactly how long they waited, but it was not the normal amount of time. And it was like they I feel like they take their viewers for granted when they do that. And I'm sure there were reasons to do it. I don't think they just wanted to wait to be ugly to people. But um, I, I feel like that you're taking your your viewers for granted Oh, you'll be there whenever I decide to get my stuff together. And I don't like that. Michelle, you're a child of the 70s. Waiting for your Mary Tyler Moore 23 episodes. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's different now. I don't compare season one and two. I I actually don't. You know, I do compare them because I think about how they were different. But I, I didn't dislike season two that much. It wasn't as good as season one, clearly. 
But, I mean, season one was kind of a masterpiece of TV, and season two was, they say Pizzolatto took too much input on not enough women and the buddy cop thing being too overhyped and overplayed. And, and so he got away from that. So he got away from his kind of formula for uh, success in season one. And he also was, like, given more control than before. So, like, a big part of season one being really cool was the producer or the director, Corey Fukunaga, and all this cool video artwork and all this cool stuff that you, know, you can tell they're tra- trying to copy some of it here in season three. But um, he was missing in season two. So, I don't know. It is it's it is what it is. People learn, and hopefully season three will be better again for what they missed out on in season two. It would have a hard time being worse, in my view, no matter what it did. We could stare at a blank screen. I'm angry about season two. I really am. It it felt like, I, I remember when we were podcasting it, and I remember that it was over the time that um, we go to Florida. So it was a real... Uh, it's it's a lot of work to podcast anyway. I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of work when you're like on vacation. And I was taking my vacation time to watch this show that was just making me mad. I mean, every time I would watch it, I would just get like more and more angry. And I'm sure it came through and it got to the point that I didn't even want to watch it. And you didn't like it either, I don't think. I think you're forgetting. I think you should maybe go back and listen to... Um, the podcast. Yeah, no, we were comparing it to season one, but compared to other stuff on TV, it wasn't, it wasn't as horrible as some of the stupid stuff that I don't even watch. Well, sure. But I mean, that's not any kind of comparison, right? I mean, we can't compare this to, you know, just any show and you're right. Season one, it was a masterpiece. It was unbelievable. And it was, it honestly ranks up there with some of the best TV I've ever seen in my life. And then season two was just such a disappointment to me. It's funny in my notes, I keep writing Ray because wasn't Vince Vaughn Ray or was yes. Colin Farrell Ray. Um, one of those guys was Ray. I, I write Ray for, cause I think the guy's Hay or Hayes in this one. Hey, yeah. So I'm putting, you might hear me belt out a couple of Ray's. <laughs> Well, you know, especially watching two of them back to back and all the stuff that goes into that and it being a new episode, which I actually like it when they do that. I feel like they they gave us this little gift because they feel bad because it took so long. Of course, I'm just projecting all over this, right? But that's what I feel like they're doing. And, and I, I appreciate that. So, you know, I mean... I'm like girl enough to say, okay, I accept these flowers. You're still on probation, but let's let's see where it goes. Exactly how I thought of it. That's Did you? Uncanny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ms. Michelle. So this jumps across three different time periods: 1980, 1990, and 2015, and it kind of seamlessly jumps back and forth. Which I guess we're learning how to watch TV differently because it doesn't seem to bother me at, at all. It seems easy to understand and. I don't know. Maybe that used to bother me more than it does now. How about you? Yeah, I was going to say something about that for a couple reasons. But the first reason is that it um, when I was reading about True Detective and what they were going to be doing, I was a little concerned about the time jumps and how that was going to work. And, um, yeah, I felt like it was totally, almost totally seamless. And 
interesting to me in a way that is intriguing that the time jumps are, are, are melding, right? Like when he comes, he hears himself from back then in 2015, or he hears things that the reporter's saying back or, or the interviewer saying in 2015, he hears it in 1980 and that kind of thing. And it's, and it's just for a second and it's just enough to make you go, what? And then it's like switched over. And I think that's, I really, it's, it's really good to me. I enjoy that. And I appreciate that in this. Also though, I did want to ask and see what you thought about it. You know, the way I took notes for this was, of course, showing the time jumps. And I'm not sure how that's even going to play out as we're going through it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I wouldn't try to worry about snagging each different one, but I would type in in my notes 1980 and then the scene and then 1990 and then the scene description and then 2015. Just to. Right, right. But, I, you know, it does it so often that I don't think it's important to catch every well that wasn't you know i think as we talk about it it's just in kind of in reference to this different times and, and i think this part of the seamlessness of ray hay is that he's kind of losing his mind a little bit so maybe that's part of the intention there is that he can't distinguish between some of those differences okay, even though we I, might be able to as viewers right and i would agree with that Except for the fact that it goes both ways, right? It's not just like he hears stuff in 2015 from back then. It's also like back then he hears stuff from 2015, which gives it almost like this more mythical uh, season one type thing. You called it something. I forget what you used to call it. But that... The dolls, I thought, was really a nod back to season one. And the cinematography, like we talked about. Um, When it first came on, and they're showing this cinematography, and I'm still, you know, kind of bitter towards season two, I made a note that I feel like they're trying too hard. And just... Everything about the opening felt so season one-ish, but almost taken to another level. That's what I meant in my opening comment. It's like, what do you think about season one and two? And them trying to get back to copying what was good in season one. And, you know, I'm not going to, I don't know, I I try to try to not get caught up in that and just just watch it as good TV. Because if season one was good and they do some of the things that were good, I don't care if it's similar to season one. You know, I don't criticize it for quote-unquote copying what worked in season one no i i actually agree with that i just felt like that they i thought what was so good about season one was that it was well it was new obviously but it was subtle everything about it was subtle and this didn't feel subtle and it just felt kind of like shoved down your throat okay guys we're not doing season two again we're back to doing season one but like i said i'm trying to find something wrong with this. And I realize that. Um, So, you know, I also made a note that, you know, I'm going to have an open mind and just, you know, go on forward with it. But the first impression with just the intro was that it was trying too hard. 
Okay, so this is totally full of spoilers of episodes one and two of season three and anything else that we might have heard. So if you haven't watched the episodes, go watch them before you listen. Do um, we really need to say that? Yeah, I know. It's kind of a kind of a template, huh? How how could we talk about the episodes if we hadn't? Well, you could talk we about them without like about what I'm about to ask you. Okay. Who did it, Michelle? I have zero idea. I don't think we can know at this point. And I think they're leading us down so many different ways. I don't even know, and I don't think any of us know, who was even convicted of it that we find out didn't do it to begin with. Right. Well, there are a couple theories floating around, and there are a couple things you can infer from just watching without reading the extraneous comments and detectiving that goes on in the world outside of television. But um, what about Ray Hay intentionally being forgetful and misleading? I know he's stumbling around in the dark at the end, but what about his lucidity still being intact to the point where he may be misleading people on purpose because he may be somehow involved? That never crossed my mind. Because you know he's doing these, these interviews so he can find out what people know. I mean, that's what that's kind of an accepted theory going around. Right. Like 2015, Ray, is what you're talking about, right? Right. I think he's doing that for a couple reasons. I think he's he is doing it and he says he's doing it so he can try to extract information. But I think he also kind of points out that he's doing it because it's making him feel closer to his uh, deceased wife and it's making him it's it's some mental stimulation that he feels like is maybe helping his dementia a little. What about Amelia somehow being involved? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't buy that. She's a, she's a writer, maybe creating her own content. (laughs) Just to throw a wild theory out there. (laughs) She she did go out into the world and pretend she was some, someone else and live life kind of in a weird little way. I mean, have you ever done that? Go to, go to a different city and pretend you're somebody else. Kind of in a better call Saul kind of way. No, just, just, she did it. She made it sound like she did it as a creative lark. She'd go into St. Louis and pretend she was somebody else and just live for a weekend like that. Yeah, no, I've never done that. Um, who else? How about, uh, do you think we've met the person who did it? I'm going to be disappointed if we hadn't because, you know, I don't mind so much them throwing different suspicions in, but you know, you got to show us something. I mean, we are a fifth of the way through this season already. So I'm, I'm going to be disappointed if we haven't seen them, at least seen them, maybe not, you know, met them, or maybe it's not one of the ones that they've shown us, but yeah. What about the junk collector cart driving native American guy? Yeah. Woodard. Um, Woodard, I was suspicious until they talked to him. And after that, I felt like this guy didn't do any of this. But I don't know. I don't know. He's he's definitely on my radar. And I think that might be who my guess would be that's who they pin it on. He seems to be the character 
the trope that always fits into these types of shows that he's easily blamed, but he's a really good guy underneath it. Well, right. He was he was there. He saw the kids. He saw the teenagers. He didn't just see them, but he looked at them. You know, I don't know. Yeah, they they definitely made him look suspicious. I know when um, Hayes was on his property, which, by the way, can we talk a minute about like overstepping bounds? <laughs> that was crazy. But he was on his property and he opened that refrigerator and. I was just thinking, you know, if you're looking for kids, and these weren't four-year-olds that you might worry about something like that, but, you know, remember back then, I mean, it was like a thing that would tell you to take the, and probably still, I don't know, but take the doors off refrigerators because some kid had gotten, like, caught in a refrigerator playing or in a chest freezer. I don't know, but something about that just made me kind of, like catch my breath. It was like, can you imagine every step you take? And I think Hayes portrayed it great, by the way, when he did find Will. Just the the horror of that. And, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's nothing at all like, but it makes me think of like when you're looking for something in your house, right? Like you hear a noise and you're looking for something, but you don't really expect to find it. And if you did, you know, whatever it is, I mean, the, the horror of that, if it's something bad and every step they take, every place they look, opening the refrigerator door that's sitting outside, opening, looking underneath a bed. I mean, never know what you're going to find and what a job. I mean, how, what would that do to you as a human? All right. So I'll check, I'll check him. What's his name? Woodard. I'll check him off my list. What about the ex molester guy that they catch eating breakfast and then rough up? It couldn't have been him. He had an alibi. He had an alibi with children. So, I mean, as horrible as that is, it's not even funny. I don't even know why I'm laughing about it, but it's just so ironic. But he had an alibi where he was with children, this pedophile. What about the kid who they interviewed who saw them, looked at them, and said, yeah, I remember them. And she had dolls with her in her Halloween bag. And there were two adult ghosts dressed as ghosts looking at them. Like, he gave a lot of info, that kid. He did. I don't see really what he could have had to have done with it. Only knowing what we know, right? Because we know that um, Julie is still alive. So it's not like he could have hidden her in his closet for 10 years. So he was still a kid, kid. So that's why I think, but because otherwise I would add him to the list of suspicion too, because he could have, you know, he had a crush on Julie, could have, you know, the brother could have gotten in between that or whatever he could have. I, I don't know. But yeah, he, he couldn't have done that and then taken him to the woods and put him in the cave anyway, really thinking about it. But the fact that Julie's still alive completely negates that somebody took her. And then what about the gang of like teenage guys? I think they're easy targets too. I think they probably 
I don't know if they were in on this. I think they were definitely doing something they shouldn't have been doing. I think they might know something that they're not saying. But again, these are teenagers and Julie's still alive. So it had to have been an adult, right, that took her and took her away from there. Had to have been. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I guess if I guess if you think you've already met the person, I can't think of anyone else that we didn't talk about. <laughs> the cousin. So, oh yeah. Yeah, Lucy's cousin, the mom's cousin that stayed with them. That was right. really creepy, and he's on. He's he's might be my number one suspect. Okay, first of all, the hole through the wall that was drilled. I think that was him and not Will. Don't you? Yeah, because it looked at the couch where the where the where they slept. Was it the couch? I couldn't tell what that was. I thought it was looking into Julie's room. But somebody said, I read somewhere because I was trying to figure it out, and somebody said they thought it was looking into the parents' room. But I don't think it was the parents' room. Let me tell you why. Because the parents weren't supposed to have been together at that point. And yeah. he wouldn't want to look at his own well, his own cousin. I mean, that's even creepier. I'm thinking that it looked into the little girl's room, Julie's room, and that is uber creepy. And if the cousin were there, he had, you know, magazines, which whatever, And but he then drilled a hole in the closet to look at the little girl who was, what, nine or ten at the time? There's that. That's really makes my radar go off. Yeah, I don't know why I remember it this way, but I thought it looked out at the couch, at the, at the, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I saw a, a, a dresser through the hole, like a, like a, you know, a dresser with a mirror. And for some reason, I thought it was the little girl's room. So okay. I don't know. So um, the, the only thing that breaks with all this is that if you go to the Nick Pizzolatto story template, the perpetrator is going to be somebody powerful who can reach out to other people like in season one. I mean, if he's copying season one, like the po- politicians of the day or the, the people in charge, the right. the ones who have power to do it more and more, that makes it more evil and ominous. And it's not just some sl- slubby slouch who's a one, you know, a loser pedophile. But who knows? Maybe he's not totally copying that formula. formula. Yeah. Well, but but he kind of is in a way, maybe not that particular part of it, but in every one of these, this is the third one where you have like these, I I do think it has something to do or something that was overlooked or somebody who sold them out or whatever, this higher uh, political person. And I don't think they're just showing that in in these episodes so far to show that they didn't listen to Hayes because he was black. I don't think that's the reason they're showing it like that, but it just seems like the higher-ups in the political stuff are always, always creepy in these. Yeah, and you don't ever really need to prove that. It's easy to see why a district attorney or somebody else political is striving to become higher up the next rung of the ladder. At any cost, and all people, humanity gets trampled underneath them as they go forward in their career. I mean, yeah. that, you don't even need to give a reason why. That's just kind of clearly, unfortunately, clearly understood. 
I don't really like that part of it, honestly. That's another thing. I didn't like that so much. I didn't, well, in season two, that goes without saying. But even in season one, I think we can tell a story without it being this big colossal, right, story. I think the story can be good without it being, you know, we take down, you know, everybody. I don't know. I don't like that. I feel like it's kind of a cop-out. So I kind of hope they're not doing that in this. I actually do kind of like that. Like they caught one of the guys, but the evil's still kind of out there. It's I don't know. It's kind of scarier that way. I think, yeah, it's scarier, but I just don't think it always has to be about political corruption. You know, I think it could be not sometimes, but it seems like it always is in these stories. But that's, you know, it's okay. All right, Michelle, so we got kind of an overview here. Let's dive into it. Well, yeah, and um, I did want to say that Woody Harrelson directed this with Nick Pizzolatto. And I didn't know that until I saw it coming on. I thought that was kind of cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, um, the aerial shots and stuff, they start with this and it was great memory jogging visuals of how much I loved season one, these aerial shots, the attention to detail that they do with the playing card in the bike spoke, you know, just, just right up on it. And this is where we meet Hayes and he is given a deposition where we find out he's part of the Arkansas state police. The deposition is in 1990. So we meet the middle Hayes at this point. And he is saying that he remembers everything and they're kind of, we know that there's a guy there that's kind of on his side, and we know that there's a guy there who just doesn't, he's condescending and just feels like he can extract whatever out of him and, and discard him. And he's saying that he remembers everything, but they're like, well, you don't remember something if you don't remember it. And just being kind of confrontational almost to him. But they're discussing overturning a conviction. And then they're asking him if he has memory problems. And this is where it goes forward to 2015, where he's listening to a recording. And I thought that was kind of cool how that happened. I, like we just talked about, I think that was really good. But it goes into where his son's coming in to get him. Now, the recording, we have to assume that Hayes... 2015 Hayes is doing this every day, right? He's leaving himself recording of the day before because he also points out the gun that's in the drawer. In a memento kind of way, he's writing his stuff on his arm, recording every day. Yeah, yeah, because if you record everything today that's going on and you remember and you listen to it tomorrow, even if you have to listen to it many times tomorrow, then you're able to at least advance forward. Kind of. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily think that. I thought at first he was just doing it to talk because he was fixing to have this interview once I'd watched it a little farther. But when he was talking about the gun, I mean, I think we know what that gun's for, right? It's not to protect himself. What do you think it's for? I think it's to end it. Hmm. If he doesn't want, if he can't continue this or if he can't remember anything to do it while he can. Did you not 
Could be that. for both. Could be an ex-cop keeping protection near him. But how smart is it for somebody with this kind of debilitating dementia to have a weapon? Yeah, like it's that? probably not smart, and it's probably even more than that. If he's documented with this problem, it's probably illegal to have a gun if you have that. Hopefully it is. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like a good idea to me. But we go almost immediately back to 1990, and they're asking him about what happened on November 27, 1980. And he says it was the Friday. It was a Friday the day Steve McQueen died. So it's funny that that's the kind of thing that he associated with that day. And then we go back to 1980 immediately. And that's kind of what I was talking about. It's hard to do this. I think we'll get better at it. I hate to like jump back and forth, but that's what they're doing. And I don't really know how else to discuss it. People get it. I think that's what I mean. People have learned how to watch this without overly describing it yeah but okay so we go back there's there's these kids and the dad and what did you think about scoop mcnary in this he's good i mean he's always pretty good at portraying whoever he's portraying and he's good at this this guy this mechanic slash drinking guy is just kind of a loser in life that loves his kids lost his wife and i don't know he's very believable i thought yeah, I thought he was very believable, too. And I, uh, honestly, I, I was so into this that I did not know who it was for, like, the first half hour. And then it kind of dawned on me, and I'm like, is that Scoot McNair? And I looked it up, and it was, and I was—then I couldn't not see him because, of course, we podcast Halt and Catch Fire, and, and that's gorgeous. And Fargo. He's in every podcast we do, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> we just follow his career, and— and podcast it. But so he's working on a car and the kids come out and they want to go to the playground, go to the new playground. And he says, okay, he's he's drinking. I think we might need to point that out. And they want to know when's mom coming home. And he just, you know, he's like, "I, I don't know. And you can tell there's something going on with that. And he tells them too many times, be home at 5.30, be home at dark, be home at 5.30. So, And back in the days when kids were able to do that, I did that as a kid. I rode my bike out. for the, My parents had no idea where I was and came back for dinner, you know, and sometimes a little after dark when it was a little unsafe probably to be riding a kid's bike with no light in the dark in the twilight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember you had to be home when the street lights came on. That's what I remember from my you had neighborhood. Street lights? Wow. We did. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, I'm not quite as old as you are, so you know we did have we had electricity at that. No, I'm just kidding. But um, but but yeah, the street lamps would come on, and that was your signal. You had like five minutes to get home or whatever. That's that's how it was with me. And yeah, we we rode our bikes, and we'd go. I don't even ever remember being told don't go farther than something. You know, you just knew. I, I don't know. It was real. It, you're correct. It was a different time. So I can imagine some of the younger people watching this and seeing these kids ride these bikes for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes in one direction is what I'm guessing the time was that they're doing it. And, um, and thinking, well, you know, the parents, how could they let them do that? But that's, that's what we did. It's interesting how Pizzolatto introduces the suspects by who sees the kids ride their bikes and kind of waves to them and notices them and stuff. 
What do you mean? Well, he introduces potential, like who, who the who done it part of it. Like, okay, who could have who could have nabbed these kids by the people oh, right. they pass as they're riding around. And everybody looks suspicious, kind of. Everybody does, except, of course, like the mom on the front porch or whatever. But, I mean, most of the people look suspicious. And I did want to ask you, okay, so this episode's called The Great War and Modern Memory. What do you think about that title? The Great War is World War One, right? But, I mean, of course they're talking about Vietnam in this, unless there's something I don't know. Well, the Great War is, to people who have been in war is probably the one they were in. <laughs> I mean, the theme in this war is Vietnam pretty clearly. Yeah. All these guys are Vietnam dudes. I don't know. Uh, the Great War, I don't think references World War One. certainly. Probably the war, either the literal war of Vietnam or the war between just life, you know, figuring out life. The war yeah. of where you fit in and what you do in life. I don't know. Yeah, I always try to look at the title and come up with something, but I, I don't know. But we go again to the card in the bike spoke that we get when it was first coming on and just all that kind of stuff. We also see Will's name on his backpack. It's like embroidered or whatever on his backpack. And I think that backpack, I don't think they ever found it. So I think that's going to have something. I think it'll go somewhere. Did you think about that? I noticed the name, but I didn't think about the backpack being an important thing yet. But, you know, we've well, only seen a couple episodes. So. Right. But they talked about it a little bit later on where they talked about the backpack and uh, and how it was never found. So, and, and it's so distinctive with his name on it. So, I don't know. Um, we go back to the deposition in 1990, and he's talking about how the kids left their house at approximately 4 p.m., and then we go back. So you're right. It's just seamlessly back and forth. But we see the group of boys getting into that purple bug. And we see Halloween decorations that are still up. But we know that it's November 27th. That's a long time to leave Halloween decorations up after Halloween, isn't it? It would be to me. Because, you know, you're like definitely thanksgiving -y time back then. We see all the people noticing the kids on their bikes and looking at them. And then we go back to the purple bug and it turns around and there's the three teenagers that are staring at the kids as they ride by. And they're not just staring at them. It's like they're giving them the eye. What, what did you think about that? I don't know. I think it's like I said, it's it implies suspicion of those guys, but it's almost too obvious to put them on the list of potential perpetrators because it's too obvious yeah um, that almost yeah, gives them a carte blanche you know get out of jail free because of that but who knows but did you notice that this was the one that will like turned his head as he's driving and he's like looking the whole and i'm turning my head as i'm doing this away from the microphone that's not smart but yeah he's looking they're like staring each other down and i'm just wondering what kind of teenage boy you know who's old enough to drive would be like that with a 12 year old i don't know i didn't i didn't catch thing. that i just kept i just caught them being kind of like gangy gangy like mis miscreant teens slash almost adults even though they probably were ad adults at that point yeah well they're still in school remember because they go i mean they're still in high school so they're 
they're not adults yet. So well, if they're eighteen, they are. Yeah. Okay, and then we go back to 1990, and Hayes is saying that he was with his partner at the time, and he starts talking about what they were doing, and we go to the junkyard. It flashes back to show us what they were doing. They were drinking, smoking, and shooting rats, and they discussed Steve McQueen dying that day. They discussed going to hookers, but Hayes doesn't want to do that. This guy, West, we meet him, who is Hayes' partner, Roland West, and he starts to kill a baby fox that comes up, and Hayes stops him from doing that. And here we hear Hayes has this, like, okay, you're freaking me out mentioning Hayes about this. I got to tell you, it can't be Hayes because Hayes was with Roland, was, was with West when these kids disappeared. But... He is this tracker, right? And he's this tracker that he's a hunter, but he considers himself a fair hunter. He wants to keep a more level playing field. And they talk about this a little bit. So that I never thought about it as him as a suspect, which he can't be, but that's that's odd. He may not be the one holding the killing the kid and holding the girl but he may know he may know something that he's not sharing with people in a kind of an illegal way or kind of wrong way i don't don't know know. why but yeah they you know they leave that door open they do but he was consumed by this this guy was consumed by this case and i just i don't know you're kind of like throwing doubt in though he might be if he had like you said, he's not the one who did anything, but if he misdid, I don't know. I don't know that. You're creeping me out. He's part of, when they interrogate that molester guy, they beat him up. I mean, he does a few things that are not cool. <laughs> you know, he's not he's not spotlessly, you know, Mr. Perfect. No. No, he's not. But he is obsessed, you're right. He is kind of like after this case, and it kind of haunts him his whole life, so it's hard to think of him being the criminal in this but who knows well yeah i mean it doesn't even just haunt him it's like it defines his life and he talks about or insinuates that the problems that he's had and everything and uh, everything like he even makes a point at some point saying he he used to think about things before and after vietnam and now he thinks about things before before and after the purcell case so it had that kind of life defining moment that was fixing to happen as they're picking up their alcohol and smokes and lawn chairs where, and uh, they're going to go try to find somebody to beat up. And they kind of laugh at that. We go back to, uh, I think his name's Tom, right? The kid's dad, Scoot McNary. And he's looking down the roadway. He realizes it's past dusk. And, then some uh, father is on the phone where Tom has called him to say, did the kids come by and see the puppy? Because they they wanted to go to the park to see this kid's puppy or something. They wanted to go to the park or go by his house and then go to the park and see the puppy. And the guy's telling them that he didn't. They haven't seen him. His kid's been home the whole time. Now, was that odd to you? Because they acted like they were going to see the puppy I assume that the kid with the puppy knew that they were coming to see the puppy, but the kid with the puppy said, 
No, we didn't talk about them coming to see the puppy. I just told them they should come by sometime. You know, I didn't catch any of that, but um, I don't think kids make appointments. I think kids like those two 10 and 12-year-old could just sit out on their bike, hey, let's go see that puppy that we heard about without even telling the kid that they were coming. I could see that as kids. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, you're, you're not... You, I'm not going to hook anything on that as a theory that the kid, the kid knew and then he didn't alert anybody that they didn't show up. We had an appointment to see this puppy at 4.58. No, you know? no, absolutely. But I'm just saying the kid acted like he didn't really know it. And he I probably just didn't wondered. know, though. As, as kids that are pretty young are, they just do things spontaneously. Okay, so do you think that these kids, Will and Julie... Do you think they were going to the park? Do you think they had something else in mind? Do you think they might have been trying to do something to get their mom back home or anything? Or do you think it was just a Friday evening, we're going to ride our bikes and go to the park? I don't know. I didn't assign any, th- any reason to why they were out being kids. Yeah. Whether they were just going out to take a quick ride to go out and enjoy the fresh air or to go see a, I didn't even connect the puppy thing, yeah. but I don't, I don't know that it matters too much. I think, uh, I don't ever, I didn't also think that they were hatching some plot to get mom and dad back together. No, I didn't either. I didn't either. I just thought they were going to the park. They're at home and you don't have the kind of things that kids now have at home so much. And so, they just wanted to get out is what I thought. But just thinking about it, it just made me kind of wonder at that point because. Yeah, I don't think a kid's transportation is his bike. I think it's his enjoyment. Like if I think about back when I rode my bike as a little kid, it wasn't like, OK, I need to be at this location at this time. I'll get on my bike. I just thought of like, I'm going to ride my bike around. I don't even know where I'm going just because that was fun. And maybe that's what they, all they were doing. Right. Well, then we see Tom, the dad, and he's riding around looking for his kids and he's looking worried. And I was like kind of feeling his horror when I watched it for the second time. I watched it with Mike, my husband, and I asked him, I said, you know, at this point, are you starting to feel kind of horror? And of course we are, because we know what what we know something bad's going to happen. These kids disappear. We know this as viewers. But I'm wondering as a parent at what point, you know, because, I mean, your kid's not home and, you know, it's not too much later. But Yeah, even as a non-parent, I, I don't have kids, but you think, God, what would I do? What should I do? How fast do I pull the alarm on this? Right. Know? Right. And then I, throughout this show, I thought that how do, why am I sitting at home while my two kids are still missing? Why am I sitting here? Why aren't I every second driving around myself just looking for them or getting on the phone and calling everybody and asking them to help me look? Or, you know, what do you do? When do you stop? When do you take a rest? You know, I don't know. I kind of it was pretty easy to put myself in that position, even not being a parent. Yeah, I I was really wondering at what point, you know, having been a more much more modern parent. And having been a child back then and knowing how it was back then, at what point would my uh, guardians have been terrified had I not shown up? I don't know. Because well, certainly like- after dark and missing dinner and they were in a broken family, so there's probably less 
stewardship of these kids than you had in your family because the mom was out drinking with some boyfriend and stuff that there weren't, you know, they weren't all sitting to dinner at a, at six o'clock every night. You know, Scoot had a few beers and then probably fell asleep in front of the TV. Right. But yeah, it was bad. It was clearly a time that was stressing him because it was later than the appointed time for them to come home. Well, and and then they show us these teenagers partying, and they're playing and kind of roughly playing, destroying a bike. Now, Mike said it was Will's bike, or uh, the kid's bike. Will Will and Julie's bikes were there. Did you get that or not? Yeah, of course. Okay, I wasn't sure because there was other kids there, and I wasn't sure that it was their bike, but Mike said he was convinced it was. Then we see the dad, Tom, and he's passing the go-kart guy, Woodard, the guy who collects junk, and staring at him. And then we see Hayes and Wes, and this is where they're discussing, they're in the car, and they're discussing killing boars and foxes and rats and the difference in those things. And they're making the kind of talk that I imagine people would do when they're really familiar with each other, but you've talked about the important stuff, so it's just like, chit chat kind of kind of just something to keep the conversation going and this is when they get a call on the radio of the missing persons and so they this is the real beginning of this for them they go to the Purcell home and we find out that William and Julie never made it home which of course we knew and then we're back in 2015 and they're asking Hayes about catching the case back in 1980 and he starts talking about the full moon that night and we don't know it yet i don't think but you know this guy was a tracker and so that kind of stuff had real significance to him back in uh, 1980 he they're they're talking to tom purcell the dad and then we go back to 1990 and Hayes says he didn't think that Tom was lying because they're saying, well, how did you know? So do you think the dad has something to Maybe. do Maybe. That's kind of an implication, too. But I don't see how. He seemed, you know, Scoot's a pretty good actor, but Tom in the show, I think, is not an actor. I think he's really showing his emotions, and he's broken up. Well, right. And, and they show us, you know— it's going to feel cheated to me if it's him because they showed the kids driving off. They show him there. They show him checking his watch. They show him looking out at the road. It's dark. Um, that's going to feel that that's not going to feel right to me if it's him. The only thing but, that would ruin this for me, Michelle, is a cheat is if somehow they say, oh, he did all this in a blackout. You know, Tom did this when he was an alcoholic blackout, and he didn't remember it. Or or Ray Hay does it because he has a separate part of his mind that's Vietnam-based that he can't remember doing things, and he did, he did something totally out of, you know, he's a Jekyll and Hyde. He did something totally out of character. That would cheapen it to a really bad place for me. Yeah, or, you know, if he did it to... Well, I mean, for any reason, really. But but if he did it because he was so mad at the mom or whatever. Right. Something like that. I don't know. I I hope they don't take it in that direction. But this is where Hayes, we're in 1990 here. And this is where he gets up and he turns off the recorder. 
and he asks them what's going on. Do do they know something he doesn't know? And he gets this smart like comment back of, you know, well, how do we know what you don't know? And just that was annoying to me. I can't imagine. We go to 2015, and this is where he says that he now gauges things before and after the Purcell case. They discuss his wife's book, because now his wife wrote a book about this. It was such a big, big deal in this area and everything. And Which is he, weird, which to me, I know she wanted to be a writer. She loves poetry. She teaches some English class as a teacher. She's into literature and stuff. But for her to write this book, to me, is kind of weird. That adds a, That's why she enters the suspect pool a little bit for me, because it's just strange for her to do that. Well, this was her first book. She ended up writing, I think they said, six more. And this was the first one. And she wanted to write, and this was a big deal. And it was encompassing to her husband and everything. I'm going to give them a pass on it. It can't be her, right? Well, that's exactly what they want you to think, Michelle. <laughs> but he's getting really emotional and everything, too. So we know he had a—he was crazy about this woman from, like, the moment he met her, it seems like. Yeah, I put in my notes that he meets her and he falls in love in the next, like, five seconds, not even knowing that she was the one who became his wife. Right. That he was going to start hitting on her as an attractive woman mm-hmm. just because he kind of fell in love with her instantly. Yeah, yeah, that was sweet. And we also had gotten like a little taste of who Hayes was when he was sitting in that junkyard shooting with West because, you know, West is like, let's let's go to, you know, the hooker. And he's like, yeah, I don't do that. I'm a romantic. And in, anyway, so we kind of get this idea about who, who he is with all those little nuggets of it. Okay, we go back to 1980 and Tom the kid's dad doesn't know if his wife is due back tonight at all. They're talking to him. We see Hayes look at his watch and it's almost 10. And, um, Tom tells him that she's out with friends and he can't even get a hold of her. So they put an APB out on his wife and that kind of thing. They're hoping at this point that the wife just picked up the kids and she's going to leave him. Right. That's feasible. I mean, that's something that could have happened. Well, Hayes wants to look in the house, but Tom freaks out, and he wants to take him to the playground. I completely understood how he felt. I could not even imagine, because they they ask him, like, you know, different times. They're, like, insinuating the kids could have ran away because of the discord in the home. And, you know, we know, as we watch this, that's not what happened, Right. We don't know anything about these people and their communication or anything like that. But having just like, you know, a, a, a bird's eye view of what happened when those kids left, they were not running away from home. Well, I will kick some dirt on my own theory that you just as a kid ride your bike around just for fun and just for exercise and fresh air and just for enjoyment of it. Because Will did have his backpack. I mean, why do you why as a kid do you take a backpack of stuff to go see a puppy? Or why do you why do you wear your backpack just to go to the park and back in you know half hour? Why the backpack? Maybe that is important. Okay, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. 
It's a good, good. You course. go to school with your backpack because you need all your crap with you, your books, and you know, even right. whatever you need at school. But why just to go on a quick ride? Do you need a backpack? That's a good point. And also, you know, it wasn't like they were going to be gone long. We hear that they left at four. They were due back at five thirty. They wouldn't have taken like sandwiches, and I don't even think there was water bottles back then, was there? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't remember water bottles, but. So anyway, Tom gets really freaked out and, you know, you can't, I, I couldn't blame him in any way, but he starts to go to the car. He's like, y'all go in there and search whatever you want. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to go look for my kids, which is exactly what you said earlier, what we would expect from him, but they stop him. Hayes puts his hand on him, calms him down a little bit and they take him, they, they go back in the house and we see the rooms and. Um, the, they nose through some stuff and this is where Wes asks if Hayes thinks the wife has taken them. And this is where Hayes says he hopes so. He hopes that's what this is. So we go back to 1990 where they're interviewing him and they say, so when did you discount the wife? And, uh, Hayes says about two minutes later, and then we go back to 1980, and the mom, Lucy, has come in, and she's cursing and screaming and pushing her way into the house, and she does not know anything, and she turns on Tom, and she starts hitting him and screaming at him, and um, they ask if she's been drinking and she's like, it's none of your business. I'm entitled to a life. She says this like more than once. I'm entitled to a life. Yeah. I like how they ask if she's been drinking, but they've been drinking, shooting firearms all afternoon. And, uh, Tom's been drinking. Everybody's been drinking. Yeah. Yeah. But they get her to calm down and go make some coffee. And then we see West outside, and he's going over the path the kids took. They're talking about that they're, like, waiting on dogs and all this kind of stuff. And he's, like, doing this step-by-step with spotlights, and they're trying to canvas the area. He just wants everything, like, blown up. And then we see Hayes. He's looking under the mattresses. He finds the Playboys. Then he finds the hole in the closet that we talked about earlier. They show the magazines to Tom, and Tom says they're not his magazines. They want the mom to go over the kids' clothes. They want Lucy to go through the clothes and see if they took anything. And Tom says she's not up for that, but they insist that she does that. Um, Hayes shows Wes the hole in the closet, everything to do with the house. The police are talking to people, and people are... um, you know, talking about the kids and also about the bug going by. We hear that, you know, Freddie Burns is the guy who who has the bug and all that kind of stuff. Okay, then <clears throat> it was just like this kind of hodgepodge of what you imagine would happen. Like they're kind of just blanketing everything and, and trying to cover it. Then we find out about this guy, Dan O'Brien, Lucy's cousin, who was staying there. Yeah, the uncle. Yeah, yeah. Quote, unquote. It's always the damn uncle as an uncle. I find (laughs) that very offensive. Well, he was staying in Will's room, we find out. And this is where they, or, you know, I think Hayes is putting together, okay, it was his 
magazines and he might have drilled the hole in the wall but he's been gone since since may so yeah so he got will's room and will had to sleep on the couch i guess is the story yeah so i guess it is stupid of me to say that hole was looking at the couch because who would want to i don't know maybe he slept in will's room and looked at will on the couch who knows yeah i don't know i don't know so Hayes is saying that everybody went home for the night, but he decided to stay out there because he was like this tracker. And we see him tracking. We see him looking at these footsteps, this puddle. And in the puddle, there's like this. It looks like the moon. He's talked about the moon being bright. It was a good time for him to track and whatever. And um, then we see like the flash. And he goes back to 2015. And the light that they had where they were interviewing him had flickered or blipped off or whatever and they got it going again and so it was really cool how this was going back and forth i was a little confused on that one because for some reason i thought he was given the deposition about this and not talking about but i guess it's both right he's talking about it in 2015 the same story as he was talking about in 1990 i guess he's kind of recounting right yeah it's all kind of merged together so he continues to tell the story. Um, we go back to 1980. The missing kids are now on the news. It's the next morning. Lucy and Tom are watching. There's some woman there. I wasn't sure if that woman was Tom's mother at that point. I don't know. It was some woman there. And we see his mother later, and I just I thought about it later. But anyway, then we go to Amelia. We meet Amelia. They're inside uh, the school, Hayes and West are, and they hear her reading a Robert Penn Warren poem to her class. And they knock on the door and ask to speak to Freddie Burns. So what did you think about these guys? Well, Freddie gets off the hook right away because he says he's on, he seems honest. He's descriptive of what he saw. He doesn't seem like he's covering anything up. He says he saw the kids on their bikes, and I, I don't know. And even the Black Sabbath kid, <clears throat> he seems to know what they want to know, and he tells them what he saw, and he doesn't doesn't seem to cover anything up. I, I don't really suspect these kids because of that, although they make them seem like they fit the pool of potential suspects. But I don't know. I think the kids passed this interview pretty the, – the thugs passed this interview, all three yeah, of them. Yeah, but they – yeah, they really don't, though, do they? Because Freddie says they, the kids weren't at the park, right? And the second kid, what, Jason Lampanella or whatever, or Ryan Peters, I can't remember. But anyway, he, one of them said that the kids were at the park that night. And, I mean, maybe Freddie didn't see them, or I, I don't know. But it was like their stories weren't the same. And those kids saw these kids, the, the teenagers saw the kids riding the bike, we know that. They were staring them down. And they were there, we know for a fact, beating up on these bicycles, according to you and Mike. All right? So they they know something they're not saying. Maybe. But do you know that the the bike you're stomping around on is the one that the two kids were just riding? Do you make that connection? Or do you just find a bike and you'd be, you know, you're... I don't know. You're reckless with other people's stuff when you're a teenage boy. Okay, but we're only talking. I could completely understand if 
if five days had passed from the time they saw the kids going by and then there's the bike, right? But the whole, the whole of the time from the time they got there until the time they were at home was like five hours maximum. Yeah. So Michelle, you see a guy ride a bike past a dog park and then a hour later you find a bike on the grass do you recognize that as the bike the person i think it's hard to identify a bike i think it's easier to identify a purple car <laughs> but it's i think it's hard to pick out a bike oh yeah that was the boy's bike that was will's bike i remember it clearly i don't think you can do that i think it's just a bike well maybe you you may be right, but the fact that one of them said they were there playing, another one said they weren't there playing, the fact that we saw them stomping on the bike, why did they show us that then? What was the purpose of that? To introduce some suspicion and to make it a little bit more mysterious. And I think kids, teenage boys are pretty vandalistic. You know, they destroy crap. Uh, they're inconsiderate about stuff. I, I don't know. I don't think I attach much maliciousness to that. Okay. Like, oh, we got the kid. Now let's we we hurt we killed the boy. Now let's kill his bike. You know, I didn't. I just thought that was a, a, a kind of a weird, creepy, creepy entertainment for them. Well, like I said, I don't think it was these boys, but I do think they knew something. I think they knew something. The um, well, teenage boys probably lie a lot too. I mean, without malice, they probably. And they don't, you know, they, you always hear these stories about witnesses not remembering things perfectly. Mike, I can't listen to you disparage teenage boys. <laughs> I just can't do it. So they're picking on the kid with the black Sabbath shirt. I thought that was funny. West looks at Hayden, he's a black Sabbath. What does that mean? He said, what did he say, satanic mass or something? Yeah. And he's like, I think it's just the name of the group. So, but they're that they're not beyond picking on somebody. They're not as as we see here in a little while. Well, satanic mass. I mean, that's this theme, right? It's like these dolls representing some some evil force that's religiously based. That it's Halloweenish time. It's like. You know, kind of the theme of the whole story. What do you think about these dolls? What do you think? What part in this do you think they play? I think they connect us right back to season one is what, mm -hmm. the, what Pizzolatto was doing. But I don't know what they mean in the story yet. But they have to mean something, right? Well, they represent whatever a doll represents. Some representative of something that's elsewhere in life or death. You know, it's a, it's a symbol of, a, of, a, of another entity, right? No, what is a Barbie to a little girl? It. It's like it's what she might strive to be is perfect body form in life. You know, it's like a symbol of something, however good or creative or not good. You know, it's like a it's like representative of something. Yeah, there's a big difference in a Barbie doll and a corn husk doll. Real not, different. Not in the fact that they represent things. It's not. Well, no, but in what they represent, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. We go to Hayes, and he's asking about Will to the to the teacher, Amelia. And she just talks about him. You know, she's the only thing she says about him that's remarkable is that he's sensitive. And there are a few of the older boys who make it hard on some people, but she has not noticed that with Will, that Will's kind of like invisible. We find out that he reads on a 12th grade level, so he's really smart. 
And well, it's um, clearly him then. If he's sensitive and sweet, he's clearly the murderer. No, Will's the one that was killed. <laughs> so he's okay. Yeah, okay. Um, he asked about the teenagers, and she says they posture a lot, but they're mostly outcast, the kind of guys who can't talk to girls or whatever. So she's kind of has, has her ideas about them. Then we see West and Hayes and they're in the car and West asks if he thinks the teenagers are lying or just lying. Like, you know, meaning is it important or is it? Yeah, that's actually a good observation because they're, of course they're going to lie. They're teenage boys, but are they lying to us about the case? Which is a good distinction. I think by this guy. Right, right, yeah. Then we go to 2015, and Hayes is talking about how they checked out this Brett Woodard guy. And they went to his place, and no one was there, but the door was open. So, And then we go back to 1980, and they're at Woodard's place. And this is where he opens that refrigerator, and I just cringed. And they go inside the house, right? And they just start looking around. And this is where they find a picture of a young woman and two kids. And then we see the other photo of Woodard from Vietnam. And this is where West wants to put out an APB on Woodard and find out where he is. And I guess he was just gone, right? I mean, it wasn't like a big deal. It wasn't hiding or anything. He just wasn't there at that time. No, it's what he does all day. He cruises around picking up garbage and recycling stuff and yeah people are pretty mean to him too by the way michelle i don't i don't hold them wrong for barging in on people's houses and stuff with the missing kids i think you go and you do you break a couple bend and break a couple laws to because time is so important at this point that you do walk in on people's houses and oh i didn't notice you weren't home and you do stumble into things on purpose to see if you can find out stuff you press Look, the limits of it, I think, really heavily. I'm all for finding the kids. I just think that if you don't find the kids, but but you find a clue or you find something, then you've kind of ruined your chances for going forward with that. I don't think that matters. I think you find that you get the kids back alive, and that's what ruins the thing later on when the guy doesn't want to do the pressing the neighborhood for interviews because he wants to solve the case and move up the ladder of his political aspirations. Okay, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. And and I'm, I'm going to preface what I'm going to say with, you find the kids at whatever cost you have to do. But at the same time, I do understand that you cannot just search 144 people's homes you just can't do that. No, but they no. had a better plan than that. And we'll get no, to it. No, they really didn't. They really, yeah, they did. They said, plan. we'll go, we'll just talk to people and see if they offer anything and we'll see if anything looks hinky. Let's do something other than just sit and wait and hope that some clues come in. I, I like that plan. I like the plan. The guilty yes. person always offers more of an excuse than they need to, to, you know, you, you, you you got to go out and get your hands dirty to see what's going on. In movies, on. they do. In TV shows, they do. Well, I don't know if that life, kind of thing. I think people do too. Maybe I don't know. And and I'm I'm all for find the kids, find the kids. I just it just they kept showing them overstepping. Okay, like like beating up the the pedophile. 
right? Yeah, was that's, that okay? That's, that's stupid. That's that's fine. That's falsely finding evidence that's not there by just wanting a guy wanting it to stop. He's going to say, "Okay, I did it. Just stop hitting me." Yeah, okay. that wasn't that was dumb. But I don't I don't begrudge them at all for wanting to go out in the field and stir up some shit to see what flies out of the dust. No, 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 no. I don't either. Okay, but now we go back to 2015, and this is right after Hayes was in Woodard's. He's talking about being in Woodard's house, right? And he just immediately stops the interview for the day. Um, they want him to continue. They said, we really haven't even asked you any questions yet, but he um, is just done. He gets up, he walks off, he tells his son to get rid of him. Was he remembering something in Hayes' house that, or in Woodard's house that they haven't shown us, do you think? Well, they made it look like this is all too much. I need to stop, or I'm having an episode of my forgetfulness. I need to, I need to relieve myself from this pressure. Or they make him seem a little guilty, like, oh, this is getting too close. I need to stop. We don't really know at this point. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe somebody smarter does, but I, don't, I didn't pick up the reason why, but they kind of imply that something was getting a little too heated for him at this point. So he wanted to stop it. Yeah. And by the way, this interview is for true some magazine, true detective or some periodical that these people are doing on the case so much later. That's why the, that's why they're having this 2015 interview. It's not a formal, um, prosecutor or police department. It's just some magazine interviewing him. It's not a magazine. It's a TV show, right? Because they have lots. And so, okay, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Okay, we go back to 1980. It looks like the whole town's turned out. We got dogs scouring. And this is where we find out that Hayes was a LRRP, a long-range reconnaissance in Vietnam. And um, because he's looking alone, and they're kind of, the, the people who are searching are mouthing to West a little bit about, What's what's he doing? What does he think he's doing? And West explains what he did. And if this guy wants to look alone, leave him alone. Yeah. Hayes goes to the watchtower and he goes up the watchtower. It's another one of those moments where, I mean, I'm sure you would think somebody's looked before, but, you know, you don't know what he's going to find. He pokes his head up there and there's nothing at the top except liquor bottles and junk. And back in the field, he's walking and nosing around. we got this ominous music playing. He goes down to the water's edge, and he finds a bike. Now, this was Will's bike, correct? I think it's the bike that the teens were pounding, yeah. Yeah. So why was the bike down by the river when it was up by this thing? There was a, quite a bit of walking in between. And this is just the next day. I didn't discern that they weren't the same place. As when the boys were pounding on it. I think that's yeah. where they left it when they got tired of vandalizing it. Well, they weren't there. You know, they were up at the watchtower. And that's the what bike... I'm saying. I didn't see, I didn't okay. discern that they were different places. I thought, you know, they were like in the, the watchtower. That's their clubhouse, whatever. Right. But so what? They walk 300 yards to the watchtower from the bike. Oh, okay. So you think that? No, I'm pretty sure they were pounding the bike at the watchtower, because that's where the firecrackers were going off. That's where everything was going on. That's where they had the fire, and they didn't have it down there. 
I don't yeah, think. I just think of this whole area as this devil's den, whatever they call it, devil's den. Okay. I just think of the watchtower, the field, the party, the bike pounding, all of all as devil's den, all kind of all essentially the same place. Okay. You you could be right. I felt like and it was And the cave where they find the kid. I think that's all this, you know, not like 15 miles away. I think it's all No, the it's same. not 15 miles, but it's not the same either because uh, Hayes is talking about where the trail starts to get sketchy. We're talking about a trail. These people went down a trail. It's not just, you know, you come on, you hung out at places like this when you were this age. Yeah, it's kind of like a state parkish place. I, I, I think of it as the same place, even though it's maybe a mile. Okay. You know, it's not. A right, but part kids of town. don't do that, right? Right, right, you're right. But kids don't do that. They don't spread out over a mile, they don't spread out over a block. When they're hanging out together. I don't know. I think they might. Okay. I, I just, I, I didn't read it that what way. What if the watchtower is at a place where you can't get your car in and out really quickly, but it's a cool place to go and it's a mile. You still walk to it. You still go to it. Even though you park your car at the, you know, the main entrance to the devil's den. I guess. I mean, we we could go back and look because they show us like sketches, overheads of what's what and where. So I guess we could look, but I don't know. But he pat. This is where Hayes finds the first little corn husk doll, and it's set on a stump, holding flowers. He finds another one at the entrance to a cave. He's photographing this stuff, including the bike and stuff, as he goes. And this is where he finds Will, and just the horror on his face was beautifully acted and very believable and realistic. Is this where we found out that he married Amelia, or was that in the other scene where he saw the book? We saw the book cover and the face on the back of the book cover. Yeah, I think that was back then. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. He searches for a pulse and evidently finds none. He's shaken up and he goes outside and he calls West and says that he's found him. Right. So we that find was- out that they caught the wrong guy. Like ten years ago, that Ray is Ray Hayes is put off by this, like almost like you're wrecking my case. What are you talking about? Caught the wrong guy, and that that somehow oddly rubs him the wrong way. Okay, I disagree with that. I thought, and you could be right, but the way I heard them saying is that Hayes knew they had the wrong guy because they said, you know, we're doing this to overturn this conviction and he's like you know about time or something like that oh maybe maybe that's maybe that's what i'm remembering but i remember it being not just like oh really like he like it was news to him like he was like he was somehow upset by this maybe he's happy like you said but there was an emotional reaction to it definitely an emotional reaction i felt like he was you know, happy that they were doing this. That was my my initial take, and I didn't think to question that. Okay, we come forward in time, and Amelia, or forward in time, well, I don't guess we do, I don't guess we move in time, but Amelia's reading that from an, another book, and she's saying that one name for love is knowledge. And then we come forward in time, and we see that the book is the life and death and the hor- and the harvest moon murder a child abduction and the community it destroyed that's the name of her book weird and, weird and this is where we see by Amelia Hayes like you were saying and we know that that was her of course i think we've seen that before but um 
Hayes' son comes in and he tells him that he he tells his dad that the crew is cleaned out, but. Hayes is just completely lost and thought he didn't, doesn't even acknowledge him. And we go back to 1980 and everybody's in the cave. West is bagging up the doll that was at the cave and Hayes is telling him there was another one and he felt like someone was leading him there. And then he's just frantic to go look for the girl. He goes out, it's dark and he's like, he, you know, he just wants to find this girl. Um, and then we go back to 1990, and Hayes doesn't even want to talk about it. He says they know what he found. There's no need to go over it again, and he's done unless they want to tell him what's going on. And they say something about the wrong man 10 years ago, and they tell him that the girl, Julie, her prints were found in a database were put into the database once the fingerprint database was established and Hayes sits back down. This is like, he goes, Oh, okay. And that it was a hit and a burglary in Oklahoma two months ago at a Walgreens. And he's just floored. Think of what a cluster F that must've been Michelle back in night, whenever 1990 or whenever this technology came about where you could take an old fingerprint and put it in and match people up to places and crimes and things where you thought you had the right person and you found out you didn't. I mean, it was, well, yeah. it was kind of a, it was revelatory and a cluster F that you, well, shit, we got the wrong guy back then. Or, you know, I think of all the mistakes that must've been illuminated by this new technology. Well, sure. It was like the, the DNA of its time yeah. kind of. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then to find out this girl is alive. And of course they assumed she was dead that whole time. And we saw how obsessed Hayes was with finding these kids. I mean, other people are going home at night and he's staying out there and alone, alone out in the dark, looking for these kids. And, then as soon as he finds Will, they're all up there and they're like, we'll, we'll find, uh, we'll search for Julie tomorrow. And he's like, no. And he's out there looking again. He's obsessed with it. And then 10 years later to find out that she's still alive. Yeah. It was kind of a big shoe dropping between episodes here. Yeah. That was a big one. So that was the end. Hey, Mike. Hey, Michelle. So almost as seamlessly as 301 into 302, this podcast will try to do the same. Okay. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Just like that. Just like how that worked. Yeah, pretty good. Because um, they did it pretty damn seamlessly. You turn on 302 and it's like, what? Was there even a break in between there? Or they just like uh, slap a slap an ending and a beginning? Because it looks like it's one continuous episode. Yeah. Yeah, they did a great job at that. So um, did anything change in your estimation of everybody since we talked about it in the beginning of 301? Um, do you... Do you do you uh, suspect anybody more now? You know, I I didn't, but you've got me like suspecting everybody. I don't trust anybody anymore. Yeah, the biggest person I suspect is these political people, this district attorney striving for more that, I don't know. I know they didn't do the crime, but I hate them as much as the perpetrator of the crime almost. For what they do in this episode? Yeah, for how they, how they put other people's <laughs> tragedies as a stepping stone for their own career advancement. I don't know. I don't know that they're doing that, but I'm guessing that they probably are. Or I think they certainly showed us if they're not taking it that far, that they're 
definitely making moves on this case so as not to hurt their chances. Yeah, you can almost see them in a back room rubbing their hands together gleefully like, oh, this is juicy. This is going to be good. This is going to help us get the election in, you know, 2016, whatever, or whatever, 1992, you know, whatever the time was that they were doing. Right. It's 1990s better. Right. But anyway, kiss tomorrow. Goodbye. Uh, any meaning? Did you attach any meaning to that? No, I didn't. Did you? Uh, well, except that the kid is dead. That that and that maybe hope for finding the kid, and maybe hope for finding the boy, will and maybe the Julie. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that they gave up on Julie in this episode, but. No, they so, haven't yet given up on her, but they're certainly not thinking. I mean, you know, you find one of them dead. What's the chances? Of finding the other one alive. Yeah, they're and, dragging the river, so they oh, kind of think that it's similar for her. I, I was thinking more the title had to do with Hayes and his like memory and stuff, particularly the way it ended, the kiss tomorrow goodbye. But I don't so know. So why why is Hayes so sad, Michelle? He's just sad in this. He's a he's a he should be somewhat emotionally removed because he's a professional. And, you know, he's a detective, so he's supposed to be doing this. Or he's a state cop, whatever. He's a detective, isn't he? Not really. He's a detective. State Uh detective, maybe. Mm -hmm. But this is his gig, so he should be a little bit numb to this, right? Callous to this? I don't know. Could you ever get callous to something like this? I mean, this is like a big deal. I don't know. It's kind of like we talked about in the last episode. I think he feels some kind of personal, like, responsibility toward this you know maybe he's thinking i can track a boar but i am not able to find this girl i don't know oh so his own incompetence and being proficient enough to catch the criminal in time to save the girl maybe yeah what do you know about this attorney and all the stuff about the you know, why why are they doing what they're doing why are they reopening and what's what's this reason for the second interview sessions yeah, do we know, and by second, you mean the 1990, right? Because there's yeah. only the one. Yeah. Um, do we know anything? I don't think they're telling us anything about that. I kind of got that they were like a private attorney working for the family to try to keep to, to keep finding clues about it. Yeah, well, no, they said the family couldn't afford it or something, I thought. I don't know. Okay, my take is this, is that, you know, and I mean, this is definitely going out on a limb, but I think that maybe they got somebody to confess one way or another to doing this and to killing Julie too, right? And then we find out Julie's not dead, so we know this person is not the one responsible, but that's just a guess. Yeah. When you heard about Julie... And Julie's fingerprints at the robbery, did you immediately suspect her as being part of the robbers group? Yes, I like did. Like a Patty Hearst type thing? I did. Did you? Yeah. But yeah. but later on they say that we don't know if she was part of the robbery or if she was just in the Walgreens, happened to be alive, just a customer maybe. Right. Right. But yeah, yeah the first thing I thought is she's a criminal. Well, yeah, because that's what you think of. When you think about they they found fingerprints at the robbery, you don't think about the customers in there. I think that's fair of us. But but yeah, they don't they don't really know what she did. 
We also find out, though, that Will had his neck broken. And couldn't that have happened from something like less nefarious or no? Well, it could have, but not when you position him with his hands praying in a cave. No. I mean, what if he literally, like, wrecked his bike and fell and broke his neck and then somebody just put him there? That's an actually interesting thought that I didn't think of, that what if somebody non-aggressive found him and was very religious or somehow creepily religious and said, oh, Poor boy, if I if I turn him in, they're going to think I did it, but I'll at least give him an honorable position to lie in until they find his body. Right. And, yeah, and, that's interesting. Well, because Hayes even pointed out, it's like they led me here with these dolls. So it's either somebody, you know, beyond disturbed who would kill a kid and then l- leave the clues like that, or... Something like what we just said. I don't know. But then we have no story. <laughs> That's the second, second description is the scenario that happened. We have no story. If just, oh, found a dead body. I'll give him a respectful position until they find him. All right. So they oh, catch- I think it's still a cool story because you have like somebody who's just spent 10 years in prison and Julie's still gone. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe. OK, I've, I, I've got these these crazy crazy theories but i guess we should probably wait until we yeah get how, i mean just to speculate a little bit how mm-hmm. does julie get away how do they kill will and not julie and how does julie get away without coming right up and warning or screaming or you know they're all in the woods they're all around there right how, how did that happen yeah i don't i mean i don't know they separate them somehow mm-hmm. and they want julie so they kill will just to get julie away from them or they sacrifice yeah. Will as they don't care about Julie. They sacrifice Will. I mean, okay. Who... Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna have to go ahead and tell my my theory because we're kind of getting into it. When they're talking to Tom's parents later, and she, and there's there's another scene in here where they're talking to Tom. Hayes and West are talking to Tom. They're driving him in the car, and. He says that they had to get married. He had to marry Lucy because she was pregnant three months after they met, right? So, or they got married three months after they met because she was pregnant. So there's that. And then the mom points out that with Julie, Tom was like offshore when uh, Lucy got pregnant with Julie, yeah, it's so they're stepbrother and sister, really. Well, half, maybe. Yeah, yeah, half. But that wasn't even followed up on, at least not in this episode. And if, okay, so Lucy's this crazy party girl, right? And if she got pregnant with somebody else while Tom was out of town, maybe it's the dad coming to take her. And maybe... Uh, Will got hurt, just got hurt, like maybe trying to defend her or fight or whatever, and he just incidentally got hurt, and they put him up there because they didn't want to leave him. But I, I don't know. You know, I mean, there's just so many possibilities in this, but it, you would think that it would be followed up on who Julie's real father might be. Yeah, that's not bad that somehow that's the reason, because they show— Lucy is this real wild card of a of a mom 
and wife to Tom that she's, you know, she's kind of a loser that anything could kind of go with her. I don't know. It's 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 interesting though. Yeah. Definitely yeah, but- a cool plot twist that the girl is alive 10 years later somehow still (laughs) it's the craziest right and she's only and we don't really think about this but she's only 20 at this point she's not like you know 35 or whatever she's 20 years old at this point that they're finding her fingerprints yeah or 18 which we know that will was younger than her yeah will was the older i think will was the 12 year old and she was the 10 year old oh i thought it was 10 and 8 Mm-mm, it was 10 and 12. Okay. Like, it doesn't really yeah. matter. No. Well, that damn um, Meryl Streep, she keeps introducing crazy characters into this world. <laughs> Lucy is Meryl Streep's daughter. Mamie Gummer. Is that true? Yeah. I didn't know that. The, mom, oh, wow. the crazy mom is Meryl Streep's daughter. She plays a really good crazy mom. I think her other daughter was in uh, Mr. Robot. Really? Yeah, she has two daughters that are actresses. Wow, okay. Anyway. So I guess I kind of see the resemblance since you said that, yeah. She's not as pretty as Meryl Streep, but she's um, interesting. Well, I mean, she's not very made up either in this, certainly. I mean, I'm, you've probably seen her in other things since you knew that. I haven't, but, I mean, she they, they do a great job of making her look like a frazzled, you know, kind of out there party girl. Okay. Do we know the names of these, um, politicians that we're talking about? Because I do not have their names. Um, well, they're in Wikipedia. I mean, they're in the show cast info. Well, sure. But I mean, Josh no, I Hopkins, didn't... Josh Hopkins is the private attorney. He's deposing the police detectives. Jody Belfour is the love interest to whoever the investigator um west west mm-hmm. love interest uh we haven't seen that yet Lori, that's Lori. so these are the people's real names so jim dobkins is the private attorney uh who else did you ask about well okay the guy who's interviewing the private attorney and then there's the other guy in there and i've forgotten his name he was the one who was their boss back then, and he's sitting in on this deposition in 1990. That's not Jim Dop. That's not Jim Dopkins. That, that's think- the attorney. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that really matters. Okay. Yeah, I don't either. That's that's just all I was asking. I'm not sure, but the this guy's telling. Hayes is getting really frustrated at this, and he's like wanting to end this right because he's not getting any answers and they're not willing to give him any answers, but this guy says he'll talk with him later. And the private attorney doesn't like this, but he kind of reiterates it. I like how, I like how Hayes connects to this when he interviews the garbage guy that they're both from Nam and they both have jobs where they just kind of punch in and out. They're not really, you know, he, I don't know if he's pretending to be this way, but he makes himself likable enough to the garbage guy that the garbage guy reveals that he's likable. Um, I don't know. He's the garbage guy, but whatever Woodard, what, whatever his name is in the yeah. show. Yeah. Woodard, the, well, yeah, he's a trash collector, but he's, he's very defensive over it. Right. He's very, um, I, I pay my way. And 
he says a, a lot of really interesting stuff when they're talking to him, you know, and we see it come back a little bit later on. He says, have you ever like been somewhere and you can't leave, but you can't stay? He says things like that. And that comes back a little bit later on. I'll point it out when it does in a different way, but I thought that was a really. Yeah. He's very thoughtful about his statue status in life. And Ray relates to him exactly. Like they both, we both punch in and out. We both like, we're exact. We're both veterans of Nam. We both relate exactly to life in a different professions in almost the exact same way. Yeah. Well, yeah. And Woodard even points out that he misses the time when "Don't Get Killed" was the only thing on his to-do list. And yeah. West is kind of, you know, well, do you like kids? You know, and Woodard's like, how the hell am I supposed to answer that? You know, it's just. It's like West is putting these people in these no-win situations. There is no right way to answer that. Yeah. But but Woodard's a sad sack, right? He's he's lost everything because the guy who came back from Vietnam wasn't the guy who went to Vietnam. So he's lost his wife and kids, and he has nothing. But he's well-spoken in that he articulates himself kind of on a deep level, like what you were saying yeah, story probably very typical of a lot of people that came back from Vietnam. They were, they were lost in life. They had literacy and they had intelligence and they had skills, but they were just lost from their experience in Vietnam. Yeah, but he's also very defensive over the fact that he's not like the others. He's not the bum. He's not yeah. somebody. He's yeah. got some pride. He's got some backbone and he's very likable and that makes him even more likable to me. Yeah, me too. So, Michelle, I wrote down the name Gerald Lint. Is that the guy's name? Gerald Lint in charge of FBI and police investigation with the election coming up? I don't I, – maybe. Gerald I don't know. Somebody. Okay, yeah, I've got to get – I've definitely got to get their names straight for the next podcast. Um, okay, tell me about the community center thing. What, what was the point of that whole scene where they're at the community center telling everybody about these? I didn't get that. I don't know, just to just to get the mood of the town. Like they have a curfew now by eight. They have um, everybody's worried and kind of suspicious of one. And I mean, it would be horrible in a small town like that. Look, Ozark like community that you know you don't know who did it, and your right. neighbor could have done it. I mean, people. Well, all- it's not like California where it's very transitory. Everybody from here, everybody here is from somewhere else. Right. Those time, those small. Ozark towns. I'm sure the generations of generations of people live there one after the other. Well, and also they're they're telling them that they're going to impose a curfew, too. So I think that is part of it, maybe, too, is that, you know, we're going to take away some of your rights and let me tell you why, maybe. Maybe, but I mean, are you that put out that there's a curfew because kids were murdered in your town? I wouldn't be. I'd say whatever you need to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't be, but I would understand. I would want to know the reason why if they were going to do that. And so they were, you know, maybe doing that. They also pass out the photos of Julie, but they're also passing out photos of Will's backpack, which, again, we hear that backpack thing that we talked about in episode one. So that was kind of interesting. And then when they leave, Amelia was there, and Hayes sees her out there, and they talk for a minute, and he gives her a photo of the dolls 
he asks her if she's seen anything about the dolls, knows anything about them. And she says, she asks if she can keep it and she'll look around. And she has some white boyfriend. Did, did it seem odd yeah. to you that Ray and Amelia had not crossed paths before this time of this case? In such a small um, town setting? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, why would he be hanging around the high? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, later Maybe. on, he's in the bar and she's in the bar. Like, oh, this is yeah, where but, we go to have a drink. Like, they yeah, never crossed. That, <laughs> yeah, but that was another thing, though, because he says he didn't normally go there. He normally goes to the VFW. So why was he there that yeah. night? I don't know. Well, I could see him sniffing around all different things he doesn't normally do on his normal pathways just to see what he can find as far as clues in the case. You know, he doesn't just go to his normal bar. He goes to their, that particular bar. Yeah. Yeah. So then Hayes is in the car with Henry, and they're having this conversation. And this is where he brings up Rebecca. So we know that Henry has a sister. Um, and we find out something's going on with a sister, and I am I have no idea what. Do you? No, just that they haven't. he hasn't seen her since the funeral of Amelia. Right. And so something's happened with that. It's kind of funny to me that Hayes can't remember that when he's remembering all this other stuff. I don't know why. Um, Hayes, this is where Hayes is telling Henry that he thinks that he's doing this interview with this woman director because he wants to find out what she knows about this case. Cause he, it's still consuming him. It's come back up again. Do we even know why it's come back up again? Is it just because it's an unsolved case? Well, it's cause they found the fingerprint, right? No, no, that was 1990. Now we're in 2015. And it's coming back up again, and they're wanting to interview him for it. I, like I said, I think it's just about, just about the case, uh, the unsolved mystery. But anyway, Henry tells his dad he that he thinks the woman's just baiting him. Yeah, and and there's that introduction of why, why is he doing these interviews? Is to maybe find out information about what people know, which almost implies that he's worried what people might know. Like, what do they know about me? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's an implied suspicion that we should have of Hayes. That's yeah. I'd never thought about that, but you you are making me more and more suspicious about that. Okay. Then we go back to 1980. We find out the FBI has been brought in on the kidnapping, not the death, but the kidnapping. But, Hayes and Wes leave to go to Will's funeral. And at the funeral, they're talking to the cousin, Dan O'Brien. He's there. They ask him about the magazines. He said they were his. And we don't really find out anything else. He's very uh, offended, as anyone would be. You know, he says he was uh, at a bar that night, and then he came home and watched Chips. He also points out that he's always felt bad for Tom because Lucy... He's always felt like needed a strong man. Yeah. And then this is where they're talking to Tom's parents at the funeral. And the mom is saying really ugly stuff about Lucy. There's not much love lost when it comes to Lucy. They're not Meryl Streep fans. Definitely not. She tells them that Tom was working offshore maybe when Julie was even conceived. Right. So that's a big thing. And it was just not brought up again, which was really odd to me. 
But Tom comes out because the mom is distraught. The dad is, Tom's dad is really angry at her for bringing this up. And so Tom comes out and asks him to leave. Yeah, it makes this guy another suspect, this uncle slash cousin guy, sleeping on the couch guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just to make the mix more tasty or of suspects more tasty or what, but it it's there for some reason. Right. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so then we come back to 2015. The director's showing Hayes a website of unsolved murder mysteries. And did you know, I don't think it's the exact same. It might actually be, though, and I, w- I didn't write it down. I should have, but that's a real website that she was showing him. Of, or there's one very, very similar to it of unsolved murder mysteries. And she shares with him that the straw dolls are theorized to be a sign of a pedophile group. Right. But Hayes doesn't think that's right. Um, And then the director goes into if Hayes felt less listened to back then because of his race, which seems to be like her overall angle and theme, right? Yeah, she's trying to assign racism to the case, which I guess is an interesting plot point of that time. But, I mean, maybe not related so much to the case. Is it just a statement on racism in America. I don't know. I don't know what that would have to do with the case, you know? Yeah. Yes. But they I do don't introduce either. it because Hayes talks about it. And right. he threatens the guy with being raped by black guys in prison. And like, he uses it freely back and forth over all the time, you know, or whatever the time zones he uses it in. I don't know. It's part of the story for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. But he he doesn't he doesn't bite on any of that, at least not with the director. And he says that um, Amelia's the one that got him the lead on the doll. Now you're making me suspicious of Amelia. I didn't even think about this stuff, Mike. That's really yeah, crazy. She's asking about dolls in class, and what the one kid <laughs> that one weird kid knows about those dolls. That kid is weird. The kid who knows, like, oh yeah, they handed out dolls, and she had some in her Halloween bag. He's not weird. Why do you think he's weird? He 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 had a crush on uh, Julie, and he saw him driving that day. The or driving, pedaling their bikes that day, and she waved to him. You know, and I mean, he had a crush on her, and so he saw her, and then he trick or treated with her, and he didn't get the doll, and he doesn't think she got the doll. Before they were together, but he doesn't know where she did get the doll. Wouldn't that be an easy thing to figure out? Yeah, that kid. Why well, wasn't that kid trick or treating that night too? And he would have. I mean, it's not. It's not Los Angeles. It's a little town that you know where the dolls are. What house is giving out the dolls? Yeah, you would think. I mean, other people would have gotten the dolls too. Unless some. Unless that's not true. That some some house wasn't passing out dolls that he thought they were, or he wanted the cops to think they were. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that what well, but I mean surely the the 12-year-old, the 11-year-old's not doing that. That's assigning him a lot of deceptiveness. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird though that it's weird that they why do they pick that kid to point out that somebody was handing out dolls for Halloween and Julie had some? Well, because somebody had to is all I'm thinking, right? I guess. I don't know. Um 
then we go to the scene where Tom's going into work. Now, not a lot of time has passed. This is right after the funeral. His daughter's still missing, but he's going into work. And the people there are just not very receptive to that. Yeah, rightfully so. I mean, the one guy, the bearded dude who's his boss or whatever, his supervisor, is kind of a nice guy. He's telling him he's being disruptive. And, I mean, he's right. He shouldn't be there. He's working with machinery. Right. (laughs) Uh, but what not do you to mention do? other people's safety, but his own safety. He's kind. He's kind to Scoot to tell him, "Get the hell out of here for a while." You know, you can't do this yet. But what do you do with that, though? I mean, these people obviously are not loaded. Um, imagine his four hundred one k is not, you know, really beefed up at this point. What do you do in that situation? He's going know. through hell, right? hell and then he can't even pay his bills and i think we're seeing that and maybe that's why they even showed us that with woodard even the trash guy was proud of the fact that he kept his own home and paid his own way and then we have uh tom scoot who his wife certainly doesn't give him any respect and now he's not going to be able to pay his own way yeah, it's bad. It's bad for Tom because he lost. He couldn't keep supervision over his kids, and it cost one his life. Now he can't keep his job. It's bad. It's bad. And he couldn't keep his wife. Yeah. I mean, the guy has. He's just lost everything. But there again, I mean, he's making this poor decision because they tell him to leave, and in place of him leaving for a little while, he just quits. So he's not showing the best judgment. You know, you don't get that hot-headed and quit. That's not the best thing to do. So I, I don't could think see it, that, though. It's not the smartest thing to do, but I could see it being a likely result of this interaction. Is he's like mad. He's un, he's he's unreasonably mad. He's not thinking clearly. He just quits out of anger. Yeah, I can see it, but I think it just shows him not making a smart decision. It makes you wonder what other not smart decisions he might have made. Yeah, but it's understandable. So then the detectives are talking to Amelia and Mike, the video game uh, Cornhusk doll kid. And this is where she really draws the story out of him, where they couldn't. He wouldn't talk to them. And this is where he points out that that uh, they were talking to two adult ghosts, two people with um, sheets on. Costumes, yeah. Right. And... That's what made me start thinking as I thought back on it the second watch that maybe this was some kind of contrived something where Julie was going to go with her dad. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe her mom and her dad. I don't know. They also, Mike also offers that Julie may have spoken to other kids. What do you mean? During the night of the trick-or-treat, the bike ride, that he saw them, that she may have spoken to other kids. I guess it wasn't trick-or-treating. But why are they talking about this Halloween route if it's November 27th? Because that's where she got the doll. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, then the detectives are driving down the road and they pass Tom. And I was reading somebody's review on it. I don't remember whose, but they were saying that... 
I don't understand that. Why would they just be passing Tom on the road? That's too much of a coincidence. But this is where Tom left his work, right? And he's yeah, that's not a coincidence. Walking away, right? I didn't think so either. And, and he, this, this is, is where he clarifies that he married her because she was pregnant. Could have been with the other guys with Julie. Well, no, it wasn't Julie. She was pregnant with Will because Will's the older one. But, yeah, I mean, we don't even know if Will's his. That's what I was going to say. There was no real love lost. He says he didn't even know Lucy, that he married her after they had only been dating three months because she was pregnant. Well, and why, couldn't he have, so he, why couldn't he have married her because she was pregnant with Julie? Because Will was their first baby. I thought Julie, Julie's the older. No. Okay. All right, then that makes that clear. Yeah. And then he starts, like, breaking down, and he wants them to tell them they're going to find Julie. He says he can't live like this. And I just, oh, my heart just, I just Well, he says, are it. we going to find Julie? Right. He he wants to know. He He's asking them, are you going to find her? Yeah, and that introduces the creepy thought as a viewer of this show. Like, are, are you better off finding her dead than not knowing? Yeah, the not knowing, you know, is just horrifying to me. And he makes a statement here, which is really similar to Woodard's statement, right? He says, I can't sleep, but I can't wake up. And Woodard had just said, "I have you ever been in a place you can't leave, but you can't stay? Yeah, he's stuck. Yeah. So that was... Some way relating them, I'm not sure how, but those were pretty neat statements. And then we go back to the detectives. They're talking to the FBI, and they're talking about they've got these 114 houses marked, and they want to search them all. And they think a lot of people will uh, will say okay. And um, the main guy, I think his name is Warren, that guy. Okay. And he says that... They're not going to like this at all. And they're trying to talk him into it, but he just kind of walks out on this meeting. He doesn't want that to happen. Yeah, because it'll kill the case. If they find the perpetrator, they will have found it by not Mirandizing everybody and like not having warrants. And they'll find the girl, but they'll ruin the case and then ruin the advancement of the career, which is more important to him than the finding of the girl. Well, yeah, and Hayes points out it's not about that. You know, it's not about the trial. It's about the girl yeah, at this as point. If he had, is, as yeah. if he had to. But, yeah. Okay, then West goes into that peep show place, that place that they had talked about earlier. And there's a Vice guy in there, right? Yeah, it's a setup. It's a setup to catch porn purchasers, I think. It's a truck stop with a porn department. <laughs> A video department, and they they catch people that way. I think it's a sting of of sex, you know, catching. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it says it outside, you know, like as far as what it is. So I don't know if it's just catching like people with porn, or if they're trying to like catch something else being maybe I don't know something else being. Yeah, any and all, them. maybe both, maybe all of it. But they have found this guy, Ted LaGrange, and he um, asks about young girls, and he's calling himself Robert now. And so I looked up, because the name LaGrange was 
similar to something in season one, the name was, and that was the name of one of the, I think it was one of the politicians or something in season one, which was really, really weird. Hmm. Um, then we go to the scene where Hayes is in that bar and he's never been in there before. And Amelia comes up and this is where she's telling him her story. Yeah, this is why Amelia is somewhat in the suspicious zone, because she introduces things that are very out of character for her. That she was an anti-war um, Black Panther, semi-Panther, she says, but those were radical, violent group of people. That's true. And she wanted to be a writer and all this, but I don't know. She was That surprised me, and they introduced us to the fact that maybe Amelia could surprise us in some ways. Yeah, I I didn't take it that way. I didn't. She she just didn't even blip on my radar at all. I just took it as she was the opposite of him, right? She was this anti-war when he was in the war. She got her degree, um, and she is this literacy teacher, and he is dyslexic and reads nothing but comic books. He hunts boars for the food, and she's a vegetarian. Yeah, Republican and liberal. Right. But didn't right. but would you ever picture this school marmy poem poem reading teacher as a Black Panther? I, I mean that was like a hundred and eighty degree turn of her, side of her. I don't know. No, I think I there was a reason for that. that. That was she's yeah. so different than how she used to be. And she's not like she's fifty now. She was probably what, twenty five in the teacher role? Yeah, 25 to 30 would have so, been my so guess. So two, three, four, five years later, she's like a pretty upstanding citizen. Not that Black Panthers weren't upstanding citizens, but they tend to push the envelope of <laughs> of laws, I think. Well, I think it's just the opposite of what he was. It's just like the the polar opposite of, of him and the things he was doing at the time. That's just all I took that as. And that she went into different cities and pretended to be somebody else. Like, what? I mean, that was introducing a strange side of her. Yeah, that is that is kind of odd. I didn't really put that together, but, but that is kind of odd. She asked him about his drinking, and he says he doesn't drink much. He probably gets drunk two to three times a month. So that was kind of weird. Um, and then above the bar on the news comes on and they put the map up of the 114 houses, which completely destroys their element of surprise and trying to find out right. the stuff about this. And then they're in the car and this is where Hayes um, starts really jumping on West about you should have stood up for what I was saying. This is your tribe. Yeah, the whole black and white thing. I couldn't, I could not put my foot down on this, but you could as a white man. Right. I didn't see them disagreeing with that because Hayes was black. I saw them disagreeing with that because, like you were saying, it didn't further their careers. Well, your tribe means you're white and I'm black, and I can't do what your tri your tribe wouldn't let a black man give them advice like you could have given them. No, I mean, I completely see what he's saying. I'm just saying I didn't read that when it was going on the way Hayes read that. Hmm. It was like he was inferring that on it, right? Because... If West had said it, they wouldn't have done it either. 
I think we find out, though, that West is more of a player because we find out in a little bit that West, that the this guy Warren had to make an appointment with West. So West has moved up the ladder really quickly. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Well, and also they introduce a curveball for these guys, maybe not a curveball because they're pretty, pretty much uh, alcoholic sharpshooting gun playing cops but that they they take um benny's all to stay up all night and it's like hey let's go get some and stay up all night. like it's a matter right. of common occurrence and find somebody to beat up for cops yeah we go to 2015 and he's talking about that the prosecuting attorney decided the best thing to do was to take this clue they had and spread it everywhere. He's telling her this and he goes, so the whole town panicked. This created a panic in the whole town when they found out that, I don't know, I guess that it was somebody right there, right? Yeah, so they show the school bus empty and nobody's outside. It's all, it's all everybody's like huddled up inside their houses. right. So the detectives go and they find this LaGrange guy and they take him to an old barn, handcuff him, beat on him. They want to know why he's changed his name. Um, I mean, they're just way overstepping anything. And his landlady says he was not at home that night. Yeah, so so, was... so not to defend sex crime, sex criminals, Michelle, but a sex criminal who is just trying to live his life after he served his time and a sex criminal searching for new victims would both act the exact same way. You'd want to change your name. You wouldn't want people to know. You'd try to lay low and not pick, pick attention out to yourself. You know, you wouldn't say, hey, everybody, I used to be a sex crime criminal, please forgive me, you would lay low, just like no, you would. No, but that's what you have to do. Yeah. That's what our laws say you have to do. You can't change your name. I know, but but as a person, you would want, even if you weren't being malicious, you would want no one to know. Well, yeah, but the guy is malicious. I know, but as you, the criminal, you would not want people, you, wouldn't, you would want to keep that from people. Yeah. <clears throat> you, would, but, you would be... Guilt, you would feel guilty about it and you would feel shameful of it. And just like if you're trying to be sneaky and malicious with it, you would act the same way. You would, it's the same, I don't know, it's the same. It's weird that you would act the same way as if you were guilty and trying to pursue more of that crime as you would as if you're trying to recover from it. Yeah, I get, yes, I agree with that. Somebody going after little kids, though, is just like, I can't even, I can't, and this is what we find out he's doing. Well, he's they playing go, a guitar at a school and he's working with kids again, yeah. At a daycare, right. He's not supposed to be around these kids. Right. That and part's bad. You get a job, you got to get a job as a, you know, a mailman or something, you know, something where you, or assembly line worker <laughs> or, 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 you know, fisherman on a boat somewhere where you're not around kids. Well, yeah, and he's. this isn't even his job, right? This is his volunteer thing. He's going there and doing That's this. That's even he's, worse. Right, right. It's not like he was trying to just make a living and eke it out some way, and he couldn't get a job doing something else, and he had every intention of getting a different job as soon as he could, and this was just 
what he did to try to make do. And I mean, it was none of that. There's no excuse. He was volunteering at a daycare with a different name. Yeah. So that's pretty bad. Then we go back to 2000 or 1990 and Hayes is having a conversation with this guy. I think Warren is his name and they're discussing what happened. Um, after this deposition and Warren's telling them that they found a full print and it was her. So, right, but they don't know if she was a customer or part of, or part of the break-in. Right. And, and he asked him if he's talked to West at this point and he says, I have an appointment. West has done well for himself. Yeah. And there were no other resources to keep, like there wasn't video or nothing else that could clarify whether she was a customer or a perpetrator. Well, yeah, the the camera, they said, in the pharmacy had been busted, but there is video of her. There is a photograph of her. We see, spoiler alert, at the end on Upcoming, they do have a photograph of her. So we go back to Hayes and West, and they got LaGrange in the trunk, and they're threatening to kill him and, and uh, you know, revoke his, or what, what's it called, where you... Probation. Do something, per parole or, yeah, whatever. And um, that gets some pretty nasty, like, comments <laughs> about if he tells on them and what they did, that he'll definitely get some revenge. Yeah, I'll go to jail and sex crime perpetrators in jail don't do well. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty obvious, though. I mean, if this guy, if we find out later that it's this guy, it's going to be like, what? Ho-hum. Like, this is so clear that it would, would have been a guy like this. Right. If you wanted right. it to be this guy, you would have this guy doing, he would be like a preacher or something very upstanding, not playing guitar at daycare centers. Yeah, it couldn't have been him, though. They know it couldn't have been him. He was mm -hmm. there. The woman says he was there till 8 o'clock. Right. So, I think it's more of a comment on how hard it is for sex crime people to ever get free of it, that they always linger back into it and wander back into it. You know, even if they're not molesting kids, they're curious and they're around kids. It's it's bad. That was so bad. So I'm trying to think about where we want to go. <laughs> well, they see the new book. She has a galley of her new book. In 1990, at at their home, Ray and Amelia's home, they have two kids. Ray has a beer after work. You know, he's kind of shown his routine routine at home. Well, yeah, yeah, they do. Um, but they had gotten a call while they're talking to this guy, this Lagrange guy, that they need to show up at the Purcell house because they've gotten a note. And then, of course, you know, we go back and. He is talking about the book, and he, this is where he goes on to say that she wrote six more novels, and um, we go into this again where she's asking, this director's asking Hayes about his theories that weren't in line with his his superiors. She's It's like she's trying to work this uh, racist angle into this and kind of blame that on why things weren't solved, but he says he never stopped coming up with theories right. on the case. So then we go to the dinner table, right? This is another thing where they're talking about Rebecca. Hayes is having dinner with his, uh, with Henry and his wife and their kids. And 
he says that about Rebecca. Can do you think you could get Rebecca to come for a visit? And you know, there's like cut eyeballs at each other, and there's something going on with that, and we don't know what. His estrangement from his daughter. Yeah, something's happened that Rebecca doesn't want to be there. Right. And so, what could that imply? Ray's I don't know. A, what do you, What do you well, think? Ray, well, that's that's an implication that's very mysterious. Again, that's like Ray's. That's adds to Ray's shadiness or potential shadiness. What could Ray have done? Ray's and Ray. God, Hayes. <laughs> what could Hayes have done that would have estranged his daughter with this perfect little family that he had that was like so primed to be perfect? Right. That yeah. she that she doesn't see him since the mom's funeral. You know, years later. Well, they had kind of shown us, though. Okay, so he is, he comes in from this deposition, and she, Amelia, has gotten her her uh, book, her proof of the book that she's written. And she's telling him that they can, you know, alter it in the paperback form once all this goes through and what's going on and he's ugly, not ugly, but dismissive with the kids and everything. And she's like, you can't do this. What's going on with you? And that's where he tells her that Julie's still alive. Right. And so she's just like kind of blown away with this. Then we go back in time and they're looking at this, at this note. So they've gotten a note, uh, Lucy and Tom and, Tom is just freaking out. What does it mean? What does it mean? It's like these words cut out in a magazine. Do not worry. Julie is in a good place and safe. The children should laugh. Do not look. Let go. Yeah. So what's that all about? Right. I mean, because that sounds like a child or somebody not very, you know, intelligent. Like Julie wrote the note herself or something or pasted the note. Maybe. Right. Yeah, it's a little too in, it's a little too adult for a twelve-year-old or ten-year-old to, or whatever. I don't know. I, I I don't assign it to Julie. Um, and it's probably intentionally illiterate. Like they spelled the word "should" wrong. I think they spelled yeah, one word wrong. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. It was "should." And it's not. It's mis. It's misleading. I think. Because it's, first of all, it's paste. It's one of those pasted letters on paper notes where you don't want them to know your handwriting. Right. Although you probably leave a lot more clues with gluing pasted paper letters <laughs> with well, paste. Well, maybe and, in this time, <laughs> now that we have DNA stuff and stuff, but that wasn't around back then. Yeah. Why not type it, though? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, somewhere you left behind a magazine with a bunch of cutout letters. Unless you yeah, burned but you it. could. Yeah, you could burn that. I don't know. I don't know. And but it was like somebody. Okay, why bother sending that at all, right? Because you have to have some kind of compassion for the family to send that at all. No, or you want notoriety. You want to see that note on the news, or you know, you want some cr- crazed credit for being creative, and you want your name up in light somehow in a sick way. Yeah, but I guess knowing what we know and knowing that Julie's still alive, I mean, you, if you take a 10-year-old, they remember where they were prior to this. So you have to think that she was 
if not complicit, then brainwashed or something, right? Maybe. Well, like I said, Patty Hearst syndrome. Right. But yeah. yeah, it's not, you know, it's not literal. You don't, you don't get that note and go, oh, okay, she must be fine. Let's go on with next case. You don't literally read it and go, oh, yeah, good, good advice. I'll move on from this. It's like, it's an attention grabber. It's meant to grab attention. It's meant to be spotlight think, shown back on the person writing it. Yeah, maybe. I think it's either meant to grab attention or I think it's really like Julie left there to be with her father. Like I had said earlier, like I theorized really reaching here and she didn't want them to worry about her. I don't know. But she wouldn't say that if she knew her. Where's my she's not going to miss her brother. Yeah, but she would know her brother's already dead. So you're okay with that? I'm with my dad now. They had to kill my brother for me to get here, but this no, is what... No, no. Remember, my theory was the brother started fighting him because he wanted to take the, the, the sister back home, and he fell or accidentally got hurt. And so they lovingly placed him somewhere, led clues so they'd find him, and then she went off with him. And look, I know this is like way overreaching, right? But then sent that note because she didn't want them to worry about her. It sounds like something a 10-year-old would do. I think, I, mean, it, I think it, the omission of the brother going through that trauma in that note, the omission of that occurrence is glaring, though. Yeah, you're right. She would say, I miss, I miss Will so much, or, you know, sorry about Will, or I still love Will. You know, she wouldn't just not include him. Just forget everything and move on is not a pathway that the 12-year-old, 10-year-old, whatever, would take. I agree. Then we go to Hayes, and he's outside in the night. He kind of comes to himself, and he's at uh, Shupik Road. That's where the Purcell house is. And he's looking around, and he starts walking toward the old Purcell house, which is all grown up and everything now. And yeah. Another how- curveball about Hayes. Like I didn't think he was that bad that he's like stumbling around lost where he can't find his own house in a bathrobe. That was bad. I mean that he didn't seem that bad. Exactly. Up to this point. Yes, he didn't. And, um, he evidently drove himself there. There's a car in the background with the lights on. So he drove himself there. Well, that's pretty scary, too. Yeah. So that's it. Right, Michelle, of... Where does that leave us? 302. Wow, we're into this new mystery. The big never is 303. Where could this go from here? Anywhere. Hey, I was telling you, you know, I'm going to be hard on this. I got to tell you, by the end of this second episode, I am completely in love with True Detective again. I think so far... I think this is better than season one. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. It's the character, the McConaughey and Harrelson were pretty hard to beat. And I think these guys are good, but I don't think they're quite McConaughey and Harrelson. No. And I agree. The chemistry and everything is not as good between Hayes and Wes. I completely agree. But I think I like the story better. There are no Vince Vaughn, Colin Farrell. (laughs) Thank goodness. Rachel McAdams. Thank goodness. All right, Michelle. So 303 is next. The Big Never will try to get it out Wednesday morning and not jam them together into two. It'll just be in the one episode. So how do people reach you until then? 
Um, on Twitter at Michelle from TN. And YouTube, right? Um, well, but not related to podcasting at all. But yeah, I'm I'm on YouTube, uh, Michelle from TN. If anybody's interested in like is completely separate, kind of more personal aging as a female stuff. And you're giving away YouTube. like fantastic prizes over there. <laughs> You know, you can use no. a random number generator. I, I know you like stapling those numbers into the envelopes on camera, but yeah. you could use a random number generator. I had to use a random number generator to come up with the last numbers because I kept uh, thinking, I can't pick that number. I can't pick that number. But, um, but, but yeah, um, I could, but then, you know, you have to like show yourself doing it. And I frequently like my voice in the first one I did, my voice got off track with the video. Sometimes when you move the video over to edit it, you have problems and it just, yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to do different stuff at some point, but anyway, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Posted notes and staples are more fun. Yeah, I think so. All right. So at Michelle from TN, I'm at Scathing Tweets. This is West Coast Project and True Detective Season 3. And we'll see you next week on 303, The Big Never. The Big Never. Oh, Michelle, one last thing. You said you saw next on. What was the spoiler for the next on? Oh, there's a bunch of them. All right, really quick. What are those? Um... Amelia having dinner with Hayes and says she used to be a mess. You're yeah. really messing me up with Amelia now. Um, he says that might be the least surprising thing he's heard. And this is not just this next week. It was upcoming this season, by the way. Amelia is sitting in a car with Hayes and is saying she needs help, doesn't she? We see a bulletin board of the case with Julie's picture as a child and a surveillance cam picture of someone that they think is her so that's really cool they did get a picture that's what i was saying we see hayes hunkered down and it looks like west now is saying that everything pointed to her being dead and if they find the girl they get the story of what happened hayes is in some graffitied house it looks really scary he's going through there with like a gun drawn we hear someone saying, I know you, I know what you did. Hayes is walking with Amelia and he has what looks like blood all over his shirt. We see Woodard, the trash guy running. There's some one eyed man that gets introduced into it. And then 2015 Hayes is saying he remembers what they did and he remembers not to say it, which I thought was a really weird thing to say. Hmm. And then he says he's tired of this being in their lives, and he wants to know the whole story. So they showed a lot on the upcoming. All right, good stuff. We'll see what happens. I'm excited. I really am. I'm excited for this, and I love being this excited over a new TV show. I'm really excited about it. We, we've um, had some duds, but this is good. All right, Michelle, see you next week. See you then, Mike. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. But I am not hurt